Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 8, Episode 1, The Kenmu Restoration. Hello, everyone. It is good to be back. The most recent novel I have been working on is now finished, and I will soon begin submitting it to agents in hopes of getting the thing published. I'll let you know more about it later this season. It doesn't really have anything to do with Japanese history, though I did include a hidden shout-out to our favorite island nation. Thank you to everyone who has joined the Patreon. Your contributions are greatly appreciated. If you've grown tired of the advertisements which now run on longer episodes of this podcast, consider joining our Patreon. For just $3 a month, you get ad-free episodes as well as exclusive bonus episodes featuring more granular information along with story episodes, which have gotten very good feedback from those who have already subscribed. With that out of the way, let's begin. The Muromachi period is traditionally demarcated from 1336 to 1573, but I have decided to begin instead with 1333 and the reign of Emperor Go-Daigo. I will be splitting the Muromachi period over two seasons because it spans such a long time frame, about 240 years, and also because I want to have a season dedicated exclusively to Sengoku Jidai, the Age of Warring States, which eclipses the second half of this period. It is hard to overstate the importance of the Muromachi period in both Japanese history as well as historiography. Many important national histories were composed or compiled during this time, for example the Taiheiki, which chronicles the Genko War and later conflicts, as well as Baishouron, which focuses on the exploits of Ashikaga Takauji, and even the tale of the Heike, which chronicles the Genpei War. I consulted a number of period-specific history books for this season, and if you want a deeper understanding of this period, I highly recommend The Origins of Japan's Medieval World, which was edited by the late Geoffrey Mass and features some fantastic essays by leading historians of the Muromachi period. The collapse of the Kamakura shogunate left a leadership vacuum which several powerful magnates hoped they might step into. Samurai contenders like Ashikaga Takauji and Nita Yoshisada commanded the loyalty of large numbers of fighting men, many of whom wanted to preserve the high status now enjoyed by the samurai class. Emperor Go-Daigo, on the other hand, was determined to restore the imperial house to its mythic glory and make the office of Tenno supreme in matters spiritual and physical. In order to understand the innovations which Emperor Go-Daigo implemented, it is helpful to recall the developments which emerged toward the end of the Kamakura period. While they had formerly administered the government through a council of powerful Kanto clans called the Mandokoro, during the final decades of Hojo clan rule, they increasingly ignored that council entirely, preferring to directly administer the nation through their personal vassals. By the time Emperor Go-Daigo came onto the political scene, this despotic, autocratic style had become somewhat normalized. While nominally favoring a restoration of the system of the early Heian period, the Daijo Daikon administering the nation with the emperor at its head, his actions suggest that Go-Daigo Tenno was actually seeking to replace the Hojo clan chief as the unquestioned dictator of Japan. Before he retook the Chrysanthemum throne, Emperor Go-Daigo had already accomplished some significant political reforms. You may recall that he successfully brought an end to the Insei system, 
wherein an emperor would continue ruling in a cloister government after his retirement. While most of his future reforms centered around increasing imperial authority, there were significant roadblocks which would need to be overcome. Certainly mindful that the warriors who had overthrown the shogunate would expect to be compensated for their actions, one of the first things Emperor Go-Daigo established was the Onsho Gata, or Office of Rewards. Men who had fought on the emperor's behalf could apply for a reward directly from the Tenno, a move which was likely meant to earn the warrior's loyalty, but which unfortunately worked better on paper than it did in reality. Heian-kyo itself was in no condition to host a full-fledged imperial bureaucracy. Many of the city's great structures had been reduced by fire or neglect or the ravages of war. The groups of scholars which had formerly taken residence in the capital had long since fallen into Kamakura's orbit. In fact, even though it had been subjected to siege and seizure, Kamakura was still largely intact and would later become the regional capital of Kanto. One particularly shocking action taken by the new Tenno was to dissolve the Daijo Daikan, the great council of state. This may seem like a strange move for a man trying to restore the monarchy's institutions, but restoration was not actually Godaigo Tenno's goal. Hojo Takatoki had ruled the nation by fiat, and Emperor Godaigo wanted to do the same. He appointed loyal Kuge to administrative posts as need be, with the understanding that they were his agents who were assigned to enforce his policies. Another development from the latter-day Hojo rulers which Emperor Godaigo would adopt and even expand was the taxation of trade. Shipping merchants had paid a small percentage to the shogunate, and now they were invited to make those tributes to the emperor instead. He expanded this taxation to the sake brewers of Heian-kyo and later to many other productive industries. Surplus money which was gained through these taxes were entrusted with moneylenders, who would then offer loans to merchants and productive concerns. By focusing on revenue, and even using the emerging proto-mercantile investments to keep the imperial court solvent, Emperor Godaigo was avoiding the financial pitfalls that had plagued Heian period regimes, which were constantly at the mercy of wealthy families like the Fujiwara, to bail them out. He also took charge of the toll stations of the nation's roads, ordering some to be dismantled and others enlarged. Reasserting imperial control over the toll stations was an important step in establishing both his government's legitimacy and solvency. Although the goals of his advisors were broadly in keeping with his own objectives, the tendency of the Heian-kyo nobility toward radical, impractical conservatism served more as a means of self-sabotage rather than reinforcement. Many of his supporters pointed to the Engi and Encho periods, which was from 901 to 930, as a golden age worth returning to. It seems unlikely that Godaigo Tenno wanted a full return to the agrarian rule of the Heian period, something which would have been impossible, although he was absolutely interested in reducing the number of competitors to imperial authority. As I hope is clear to you, dear listener, Japanese society and government in the 1300s had made some significant changes since the early 900s. 400 years of administrative evolution could not be wished away. Unfortunately for the long-term health of his regime, many of Emperor Godaigo's appointees and Kuge supporters were extremely prejudiced against the warrior class. One of his chief advisors, Kitabatake Chikafusa, 
argued specifically for the abolition of the offices of Jito, or steward, and Shugo, or regional constable, since both were products of the Kamakura shogunate. By this point, however, the shoens were not independent self-sustaining farms, but had begun to specialize and branch out. Some produced food, but many also produced lacquer, tools, lumber, and even craft goods. The Shoens themselves formed vast networks which spanned the nation, and which could not suddenly be reorganized without making enemies of a massive swath of the warriors, temples, and aristocrats who benefited from these income-producing estates. What followed in the aftermath of the Genko War was an uneasy status quo in which Emperor Go-Daigo was recognized as the legitimate sovereign, while his powerful samurai supporters expected the usual rewards for their military service. It will probably be helpful to review the most influential of these warriors. We will start with the man who was arguably the most loyal to the restored emperor, Kusunoki Masashige. This samurai leader hailed from Kawachi province in the Kansai region, and impressively held out against the siege which gave the emperor in exile time to organize a resistance and convince defectors to join his cause against the Hojo clan. His martial skill was matched only by his loyalty to the emperor, and in an age of shifting loyalty and hatred-based motivations, he stands out as a genuinely idealistic samurai who believed in restoring imperial power. Next was Nitta Yoshisada, a defector general who had been fighting on behalf of the Hojo clan, but was persuaded by letters from Prince Moriyoshi and Emperor Go-Daigo to join their cause. He pursued a successful military campaign against the Hojo in their home region of Kanto, and ultimately took Kamakura itself. The final samurai leader worthy of mention is Ashikanga Takauji, a cunning leader who had assembled an army which was directly loyal to him, Takauji had crushed the Rokuhara garrison in Heian-kyo, which caused the army besieging Masashige's Chihaya fortress to flee in terror. He had secured Kansai and Chugoku with a single stroke. Emperor Go-Daigo had no intention of entirely ignoring the more influential samurai who had helped place him on the throne, but he was not enthusiastic about appointing someone from the warrior class to the office of Sei Tai Shogun. Instead, he nominated his son, Prince Moriyoshi, who had assisted in the defense of Chihaya Fortress, alongside Kusunoki Masashige. Appointing a kuge to the office of shogun rather than a samurai was an obvious sign that the warrior class would not be given top-tier executive appointments, but the prince was never officially installed into the position. Godaigo Tenno knew that he would need the cooperation of the samurai in the near term, and did not want to provoke Ashikaga Takauji. Thus, many samurai leaders were given fairly plum regional appointments. Kusunogi Masashige was granted the governorship of Setsu and Kawachi provinces, both in the Kansai region. Nita Yoshisara was given governorship of Echigo, a northeastern province in Chubu, as well as the vice-governorships of Kozuke province to the south of Echigo and Harima province in Chugoku. Ashikaka Takauji was made the governor of Musashi province, and named as Shugo over several provinces of Kanto. Ashikaga Takauji had expected to be named as Seitai Shogun, and was disappointed by Prince Moriyoshi's nomination. Takauji had been leading an army against Emperor Godaigo's forces in Chugoku, and when he instead turned against the Rokuhara garrison in Heian-kyo, 
it allowed the emperor to make his triumphal entry into the capital. It was probably easy for him to convince himself that he had made the greatest contribution to the war effort and therefore deserved to be the next Chogun. During his occupation of Heian Kyo, he had established the Bu Gyosho, or control office, to keep order in the capital and essentially perform some of the same functions as the Rokuhara Tandai, which he had just destroyed. It is possible that by making him the Shugo over many Kanto provinces, the emperor was trying to mollify his ambitions. Meanwhile, the emperor's advisors, especially Kitabatake Chikafusa, certainly had no love for the Ashikaga leader, whose lineage as part of the Sewa Genji was not as illustrious as their own. The nobles were also embittered against the warriors in general who, in their minds, had been usurping authority, both theirs and the emperor's, for over a hundred years. At the heart of the conflict between noble and warrior that played out during the Kemmu Restoration was the fundamental question of who had the right to lead. The aristocrats would no doubt point to their illustrious lineage, some even being able to trace their ancestry back to an emperor. Obviously, pedigree was important to the warriors as well, but it does seem as though personal charisma and practical capability were also critical factors in gaining a loyal following. Unfortunately for the nobles who had been raised on stories of their impressive ancestors ruling the land with an enlightened fist, being descended from such impressive persons did not, by itself, confer actual governing capability. One of the biggest problems facing the new administration was the Shouens. In addition to being productive engines which supplied the nation with food, crafts, and luxury goods, the Shouens were sources of private wealth, which were subject to more lenient taxation than public land. The holdings of former Hojo clan members were now up for grabs, having been confiscated on the emperor's behalf, but he needed to exercise caution in how he distributed rewards. The owners of the Shouens did not manage their day-to-day affairs personally, but generally hired managers to run the estate while they collected the income as absentee landlords. This situation was generally an unhappy one for workers in the best of times, and had gotten predictably worse during the chaos of the Ginkou War and its aftermath. With the usual authorities distracted by political crises and war, the managers of these estates could squeeze their laborers with impunity, often collecting more of their product than agreed upon and setting armed thugs upon those who tried to resist. This meant that the beginning of Emperor Godaigo's reign was filled with official complaints and petitions. Lots of them. Workers filed complaints against their managers who were accused of abuse and exploitation. These needed to be resolved in courts which the emperor established purely to deal with these issues, but corruption was rife, and frequently the very managers who were found guilty of abuse and exploitation were put back in charge of the very people they had been abusing and exploiting mere months after their official removal. Godaigo Tenno's most vociferous supporters and closest advisors had little to contribute besides informing the emperor that this entire situation should not exist in the first place. Very helpful, guys. In addition to the troubles of the commoners, Emperor Godaigo's regime faced the monumental task of allocating rewards for the samurai who had fought on their behalf. The Hojo estates they had seized were considerable, but would not be enough land by itself to dole out to loyal warriors. This was compounded by the fact that many shōens had by now been divided by the Kamakura shogunate into smaller pieces which amounted to paltry rewards for those who had risked life and limb. 
The appointees administering the Office of Rewards made little effort to ensure that the rewards they granted were commensurate with the service rendered, and the dissatisfied samurai often sought the patronage of an independent magnate, particularly Ashikaga Takauji. There were also other power brokers who emerged in the wake of the Hojo clan's collapse. While the larger temples could not field the Sohei armies of yesteryear, they were still an influential force in Japanese society. The newer school of Zen Buddhism continued to receive samurai patronage, and the Pure Land schools continued to grow in popularity among the common people attracted to their straightforward doctrines and accessible practices. Emperor Go-Daigo earnestly sought the approval and endorsement of the Buddhist establishment, and his agents in the court dealt very favorably with Shouen managers accused of corruption who supervised estates owned by the great temples. However, the only support the church could really offer the sovereign was moral support, as their own groups of warriors were still small compared to the forces marshaled by Ashikaga Takauji. This brings us to the subject of Proto-Bushido. We discussed the beginnings of Bushido last season, citing a few Kamakura period works which list the rules and proper behaviors of a warrior. Far from being a set of stone commandments handed down from on high, these rules and expectations were in flux. Not only did they include admonishments for rank-and-file samurai, but also expectations of a liege lord. Those samurai leaders who failed to uphold their part of the bargain risked being abandoned by their vassals, who would often seek employment among their former employers' rivals and enemies. The tumultuous nature of samurai loyalty during the Muromachi period led some earlier historians to brand the era as an age of turncoats, incompetence, and traitors. As we explore some of the more famous defections and seeming betrayals which will come up this season, we will try to investigate these matters while keeping in mind the standards and expectations of the time. Of all the leading samurai warriors of the day, without question the most powerful in terms of influence and following was Ashikaga Takauji. While Emperor Go-Daigo and his supporters ground their teeth at the Infernal Man's interference and power-grabbing, they had at least enough sense to understand that challenging him in the theater of war would be a huge mistake. His armies were, for the time being, often busy fighting against the guerrilla campaigns of Hojo clan dead-enders, who periodically attempted to inspire nationwide rebellion. However, Takauji himself had taken up residence in Heian-kyo and left much of the fighting in the east to his brother, Tadayoshi. The closest thing to a legitimate challenger to Takauji's unchecked power was Prince Moriyoshi. In spite of his nomination to Seitai Shogun, the monk-slash-warrior prince had remained in Yoshino to the south of the capital in the immediate aftermath of the Genko War, observing political developments from a distance. Late in 1333, he finally traveled to the capital and began taking a more active role in his father's administration. The Ashikaga brothers certainly viewed Prince Moriyoshi as a potential roadblock to their ambitions, and they soon acted to assert their authority. Had the government of Godaigo Tenno been operating smoothly and competently, the Ashikaga brothers may have been brought under control. Unfortunately, even the most sympathetic accounts indicate that Emperor Godaigo's government was a mess. It turned out that very few noble appointees actually possessed the prerequisite skills needed to perform their functions. Many of those appointed to the Office of Rewards had no experience apportioning rewards for service, so the rewards given were rather lopsided, 
with some late-joining warriors being given lucrative show-ends, while some who had heroically risked their lives in dangerous guerrilla attacks were left with partial ownership over a fragment of an estate. Imagine risking your life for a sovereign and being rewarded with a timeshare. The courts set up to deal with Shoen complaints did no better, as Emperor Godaigo could not risk alienating the temples who owned many of the estates in question. Bribery became rampant among both the complaint courts and the Office of Rewards, making everyone unhappy. Some of the discontented started to whisper that life was better with a shogunate. The political intrigue between Ashikaga Takauji and Prince Moriyoshi did little to calm the situation. The shogun prince brought samurai leaders like Nita Yoshisada and Nawa Nagatoshi into his orbit, an easy task as both men disliked Takauji. Emperor Godaigo's wife, Lady Fujiwara Renshi, allegedly tossed gasoline onto this burning rivalry by warning Takauji in the summer of 1334 that Prince Moriyoshi and his samurai cronies were plotting against his life. Takauji summoned warriors to his mansion in Heian-kyo, and they prepared to defend the house against an imminent attack. Neither Prince Moriyoshi nor his samurai friends attacked the Ashikaga residents, but that did not stop Takauji from complaining to Emperor Godaigo and demanding the sovereign take disciplinary action. The autocratic emperor had already made several mistakes in his attempt to govern the nation, but he was arguably about to make his worst decision yet. He swore that he had nothing to do with any attempt against the Kanto leader, and claimed that any plotting must have been the work of Prince Moriyoshi. Yes, this was exactly what it sounds like. Emperor Godaigo was shifting the blame to his own son because he feared the wrath of Takauji. There is no such thing as a perfect sovereign, and even the most lauded of kings or emperors certainly had faults. However, Emperor Godaigo's fault was that he continually gave up those loyal to him under the smallest hint of pressure from those he feared. You may remember the various schemes of his underlings at the end of last season, which the Kamakura shogunate discovered. In those cases as well, he bade the Bakufu to do what it must, and spoke not a single word in defense of those who were trying to help his cause. The fact that he would even avoid defending his own son is not only shocking, it was an unforgivable misstep. Ashikaga Takauji interpreted the emperor's craven blame-shifting as a sign that he would not defend Prince Moriyoshi and acted accordingly. Several months after the alleged plot, Takauji ordered the arrest of Prince Moriyoshi and several of his followers, although notably not Nita Yoshisada. Takauji had drawn up an imperial warrant so that everything was above board. After several weeks cooling his heels in the capital, the warrior prince and his crew were shuffled off to Kamakura, where Ashikaga Tadayoshi imprisoned them. As things continued to deteriorate in the capital throughout 1335, alarming reports began trickling in from the east. Small-scale rebellions had erupted in Kanto, and it was feared that Hojo partisans were attempting to topple Emperor Godaigo's regime and revive the shogunate. Ashikaga Tadayoshi commanded the suppression of these risings and everything seemed to be in hand. In August, when it appeared that these skirmishes were on the verge of fizzling out, the son of Hojo Tokimasa, one Hojo Tokiyuki, emerged with a large force at his command and marched on Kamakura. The outlook for the seat of the old shogunate was grim, and Ashikaga Tadayoshi opted to abandon the city as Tokiyuki approached. 
He took young Prince Narinaga with him and ordered the death of Prince Moriyoshi before taking flight. Tadayoshi and his rearguard fled all the way to Suruga province, which is on the southwestern edge of Kanto. Ashikaga Takauji recognized this as a potential disaster. Such a threat to his own domains could not be tolerated. He went straight to Emperor Godaigo and requested most firmly that the sovereign name him as Seitai Shogun and allow him to assemble an army to crush Hojo Tokiyuki and put an end to the Hojo clan dead-enders before they could build sufficient numbers to march on Heian-kyo itself. The emperor once more refused to grant him the title. Not content to wait for things in the east to get even more out of control, he departed Heian-kyo on August 21, 1335, citing family duty. He had not been granted permission to leave the capital and would proceed to ignore every imperial summons thereafter which ordered him to return. He had, in essence, disobeyed the emperor. Next time, we will continue following the actions of Ashikaga Takauji as he joins with his brother Tadayoshi to take the fight to the Hojo partisans in Kanto and see what consequences lay in store for the imperial court, the Ashikaga brothers, and the entire nation. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.